This is Fordham Conversations. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon. Disney's new take on the classic fairy tale, The Princess and the Frog, is the first time in the company's animation history that the lead character, Princess Tiana, is African-American. But what seemed like a positive movie milestone has prompted blog postings, news stories, and discussions that range from elated to angry. Some are happy Disney is putting a black face on one of its princesses. Some are afraid that it would be just that, a dark-skinned character that lacked any real cultural depth. Some are upset Princess Tiana is not paired with a black prince, and some say the whole issue is being taken way too seriously. On this week's Fordham Conversations, we hear from Marjuan Kennedy about the history of African-American images in film. Marjuan is an actress and a 2008 Fordham grad. She holds degrees in theater and African-African-American studies. She also was the president of the black student group Malimo while she was at Fordham and is currently pursuing her master's degree at NYU. Well, in uh, 1903, Uncle Tom was the first on-screen black character. Now, at that time, black characters were actually white actors in blackface. And he was in a 12-minute silent film called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that was the first of what will become a long history of negative, stereotypical black images in film. Author uh, Donald Bogle breaks them down into five roles, Toms, Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks. Marjuan, tell me about the personality traits of each of these characters and, and why they were so degraded. Mm -hmm. Well, these characters are stereotypical images that is really from the dominant society's gaze, really the white, white's gaze into black communities. And it's really focusing on one dimensional traits of, let's just say the blanket term now, blackness, which is very complicated and very different. Um, wherever you may go. But in terms of these images, the Uncle Tom is considered a subservient uh, black man towards uh, just pleasing everything that the white man or maybe his owner wants him to. So we did sure. Tom, and you went with the coon character. The coon is very different from the Sambo, and they have similar traits. The coon is lazy, easily frightened, and can't take care of himself, whereas the Sambo has all those traits, but they're a child. Um, the Mammy is usually portrayed as a dark-skinned woman, heavy-set, asexual, always trying to please the white family that she works for. She's usually a maid. And the mulatto is, the actual term is the tragic mulatto, and the tragedy is that she's stuck in between her being black and being white. She's usually a biracial woman or to play the image of very light skinned, have very European features and she's hypersexualized. She's there for the pleasure of men, black, white. And the tragedy is the only way she can get out of um, her race and her identity is through death. And then the the Buck character actually uh, didn't come about, at least I didn't see a lot of Buck characters until like the 70s. And it's important to remember that these images are stemming from the root of slavery and white entertainment folk coming to the plantations and looking at black culture, what's happening on the plantations and taking out um, characteristics of it. So actually the Buck character comes from that image of the violent um, slave, the violent black male slave who was always going against the white man's will. Um, so it's interesting, like you said, that it didn't appear on film until later on.
So let's start with, let's say, around 1915. So that's when the film Birth of a Nation, which was based on a play called The Klansman, which gives you an idea what the film was about. And it was extremely popular. And it was also considered the greatest motion picture of all times, mostly because of its cinematic technique. So Marjwan, what type of black images did moviegoers see? This movie, Birth of a Nation, like you said, was praised for its cinematography and its breakthrough in the actual film industry. Um, but the images that were shown, like many movies at the time, if there were black images, they were all played by white characters in blackface. And later we would see black performers performing in blackface. Um, and it was very much focused on uh, what was happening with with the political time, specifically on what was happening with black men and this fear that black men were uh, going to disrupt the nation, uh, what what was happening with the end of slavery, with Reconstruction. Um, there was a fear that black men, that they portrayed these images that they were lazy, they were alcoholics, they were ruthless, they were violent. And the focus mainly was on what was going to happen to white women. So there's this dichotomy of the violent black man and the fragile, uh, docile white woman. I think it's important when we talk about Birth of a Nation, the focus is on um, the role that white womanhood played in America at that time. And actually what it still plays today, juxtaposition of the images of black women versus white women. So um, let's talk about these so-called race movies, which were introduced around 1927 and lasted till around like 1948. So Marjwan, what are race movies? I don't know if I like that term. Okay, you can change that term. That's fine. <laughs> but it was actually a period in history where um, black filmmakers, black writers, black actors um, came together to produce their own movies for all black audiences in black theater houses throughout the country. Uh, Oscar Micheaux is one of the most famous uh, filmmakers at that time. Over 500 films were made at that time, but we only have about 100 um, that's left in uh, archives of these movies. And they really focused on the complexity of black life, the normalcy of black life. and. I've only seen a few of these films that it's interesting to put them up against films like Birth of a Nation because they really show, you know, black life at home, black life in church, black life in school. You actually see uh, a story. And I think that's the difference between a white filmmaker looking into black life and just picking the images, the stories, the moments they want to tell, whereas someone that is telling their own story, they're coming from a different gaze. And like I said, Oscar Micheaux was was the most praised uh, filmmaker of this period of race movies. And I th I'm not sure of the name of his company. He had his own company. He hired all black actors. One of the things that he had to do to keep the companies going, he would take them and go from town to town to town to town mm -hmm. and show them this way because obviously there was a problem with distribution at the time. So it's interesting that the tradition of uh, black actors, a lot of them have come from this period and it continued in the 1920s, 1930s in theater to develop their own theater companies. And I think it's important to look at participation in film versus in theater, whereas 
in the 1930s and 1940s, you saw more uh, independent black theater companies and uh, black producers, and you never really hear about it, but the work that is being done on the stage um, compared to on, te on television and in film was very different. And I think that's why a lot of black um, actors, writers, directors moved towards the theater because there was more freedom in creating their own images. This is Forum Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon in the WFUV studio with Marjuan Kennedy. We're discussing the history of African-American images in film. Now, Marjuan, with the addition of sound and of blacks playing black roles instead of whites playing these roles in blackface, what did this do for or against black actors like Stephen Fetchett or Willie Best, some of these Coon-like characters, or Hattie McDaniels, Ethel Waters, who kind of played the mammy sometimes, and even later to Lena Horne and Dorothy Dandridge, who at some point received more respect as actors but were still held to certain stereotypical standards? Well, they definitely gave visibility to black actors that like today you go to the movies and you want to see an image of somebody for the most part if you're black or latino you want to see an image of somebody that looks like you just the visibility of having someone on screen i think lended to um telling the story but at the same time it was perpetuating a stereotypical image of what black life was, uh, specifically, you know, Dorothy Dandridge in Carmen Jones, you know, she was the first black woman to be nominated for Best Actress for Oscar, um, which is a great leap, but the actual route that she had to take and the the decision she had to make as an actress to decide to play that role, it's problematic because, yes, she did not write that film. She didn't write that character. But you can definitely see that in the choices that these actors made. Um, what's the woman that played? That was Mammy. Hattie McDaniel. Hattie McDaniel. Hattie McDaniel. Gone with the Wind. Right. Um, people can say, like, Hattie McDaniel and even Burt Williams, who was more of a stage actor, um, being in blackface and having to play these stereotypical images, they began to reconstruct identity slowly. That, yes, they had to play the tragic mulatto or the mammy or the coon or the buck, but... The more they kept doing the work, they slowly began to change characteristics of these stereotypes. And I think it's important to look at uh, what was happening at that time in terms of maybe the 1920s versus what was happening 20 years before then. And we can even look to today, how much progress have we actually made? And I think a lot of it has to do with ownership and um, what we value. And unfortunately, a lot of black uh, black actors, per se, um, and that's the tricky part of being an actor. I'm an actor as well. That your choice comes in um, the roles that you choose, and at that time, black actors didn't have that many roles to choose from. So people like Oscar Micheaux were so important because they were creating the actual cultural product where. Hollywood was creating what they thought black life was. Uh, so I think it's important that uh, we look at the leaps that these actors made in playing the stereotypes and 
um, how they, they personally tried to bring to right, it. How they personally tried to change the image and how they bring humanity to the image is what we have to look at. And I remember um, one of the things that Hattie McDaniels said, which I think is so symbolic of what we're talking about, is she said, I could either be an actress and get paid whatever amount of money she was getting paid at the time for playing a maid or I could actually, could actually be, be a, a maid. maid. <laughs> yeah, you know. So film spanning like 1949 through 1969 was when African-American actors began to perform alongside white actors in roles that really dealt with resolving conflict, often racial conflict. Um, but some argue that black roles still focused more about appeasing other races. So Marjuan, how would you describe this evolution of black images on screen? And that's an interesting point because I always believe that the politics of what's happening at the time internationally and especially nationally is reflected in the arts and specifically in Hollywood that they're trying to create an illusion of what America is supposed to be or um, how they see it. And when I say they, it's usually white men. That idea of being black and being at the center of a film, they had to be docile because why so? They couldn't be anything else because it was it was too threatening. Like to have a Malcolm X character that was black conscious that really combined their political life with their spiritual life, with their emotional life, their sexual life, a full person on film. It was threatening to... America wasn't ready for that. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking also at this time period that you still had segregation. Yeah. So film was probably the only interaction that some of these people had with people of other races. Right. And it's really as if you're going to a theater and step into the lives of somebody else. So to see an interracial couple in its complexities and how it was problematic at that time, they weren't going to necessarily show that. Even today, a lot of scholars have not studied the rape, studied the history and the effects that uh, slave culture has had in relation to uh, the effects of black families today, black women today. We live with Obama now, so people want to say it's we live in a post-racial society, um, non-racial society, where when you, you always see race, Race is a social construct, but it's so embedded in the makeup of America that we can't help but see race and we can't help but see um, gender and roles that were subscribed to black women, white women, Latino women, Asian women. So what do you say to people who, who um, especially living in New York, I'm finding a lot of people like to ignore race. Mm -hmm. uh, they like to say, I've heard... Um, you know, color doesn't matter. Um, or I'm colorblind. So what do you say to people who respond to race like that? I mean, it's ideal. It's ideal to not see color. But when I, and I'm speaking from my experience, um, you know, when I walk into an audition room, the director, the casting director, already has an idea of what they see the character I'm auditioning for. If I physically don't look like what they think, I'm not cast. So ideally, yes, I want to be cast because I'm a good actor and I can tell stories. But if they believe that this character is supposed to be 
submissive and fragile and if I don't if I don't show that in just physically what I look like which is based on a historical stereotypical context that a lot of people come from it's so subconscious that we don't even know we don't recognize it we don't recognize it so I think Yes, we shouldn't define other people by their race or their gender or sexuality or class, but we really have to investigate the history behind it and why we believe the things that we do. And I don't think that we can live in a colorblind nation. And I really feel like all over the world, um, especially the term blackness, it's a problematic notion that what is black and who is black and uh, who's connected to Africa? And, you know, if you go to Brazil, they think differently. If you talk to blacks in Europe, it's it's a different notion. And I don't think that we can fully move past it and, unless we go back and remember. And investigate. Mm-hmm. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. I'll be right back to continue my discussion about the history of African-American images in film with actress and Fordham grad Marjuan Kennedy. So um, does race matter? That's the million-dollar question. <laughs> um, I, you know, maybe about four years ago, I would have said, yes, race matters. Um, <laughs> I actually... <laughs> now believe that culture matters Mm. more than race. Explain the difference. Well, like I said, race is a a social construct. But I think the difference with culture is understanding, like I just said about the term blackness, understanding how cultures are created and the roots that, if we just talk about the transatlantic slave trade, how... Africans were distributed through the slave trade throughout the Americas, new cultures and new memories that were created in remembering cultural practices took on new forms and new shapes. So this is why I'm saying culture, I think, is so important more than race that especially for black people, whatever black is, (laughs) black um, in quotes, black in quotes, (laughs) that we're much more unified than we think, that we share, um, we're very different, but we share a lot of cultural practices. And so instead of separating so much what African-Americans do versus West Indians versus Afro-Latinos, um, we really have to understand how cultures were created with a European modernity, uh, African modernity to create new modernities in in geographic spaces. So now getting back to uh, film. Um, yeah, that's a little digression. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. It was a good digression. Uh, and even speaking uh, socially, uh, Marjuan, how did the political and social unrest of the 60s and 70s translate to film? Mm-hmm. Well, there were definitely at that time, like I said, more uh, writers, more producers. But in film, you saw the beginning of black exploitation films where it was, you know, the black superhero. And again, like people thought it was progress. And I guess it was progress from the images that you saw from uh, the 20s, the 30s. But it became a new image. And it's important that these images still remain one dimensional. Uh, I f- 
what is the woman's name? Uh, Foxy Brown, the actress. Oh, it's Pam, Pam Greer. Greer. <laughs> Pam Greer. Um, and, you know, it's, it, at that time, probably watching it, I'm sure, you know, black women or black communities, you know, they saw a strong woman and it was very different from the mulatto image, the mammy image. But at the same time, you only saw one dimension of this superwoman and this this concept that black women are superwomen, that they can't be vulnerable, that they can't not know, that they might need help, that they have to be on top of everything. So once again, there's progress, but you have to take a step back and look at, is this a three-dimensional person with a full story? And again, that you didn't see that. Okay, so speaking of that, um, let's talk about the Disney film The Princess and the Frog. Basically, the fairy tale centers on a, a young girl named Princess Tiana uh, who lives in New Orleans, French Quarter in the 1920s, and she dreams of owning a restaurant before being turned into this frog. Why do you think it took Disney so long to make a movie about a black princess? I think it's taken a while because of the notion of what blackness is and how history is connected to these images there is an impact of what what film and images have on all people and especially children um, where you see a, a value in whiteness a value in a certain type of blackness that children begin to develop from an early age you saw that with um, the doll test explain what that is for the listeners I believe explain her name was. was Kira Davis she went and um, did this doll test a black doll and a white doll with I believe it was about 20 children all black children boys and girls between the ages of like six I believe six and eight and for the most part all of them said you know the black doll was the ugly doll the white doll is the better doll the pretty doll and she would ask them uh, which doll looks closer to you and they would all pick the black doll so it's pretty clear that the effect that images have in creating identities um, especially that's developed in children and developing self-hate from a very young age and not even acknowledging that it's self-hate because if they're picking that. all the white light dolls and saying they're beautiful and they're mm -hmm. and they're saying the black dolls are ugly but they're relating with the black doll mm -hmm. what impression is that giving them um, subconsciously they're not even connecting that they're saying I'm ugly right. that I'm unattractive that I'm and unwanted it's, it's really about the politics of art um, and people always think political art is you know art that is out there protesting and saying something radical but there's politics in the way that a film is created you're choosing to set it in New Orleans there's a politics in that there's a politics in having a white prince instead of a black prince so it's all in the choices that are made and those politics are very much connected to what you believe society is ready for I've heard people say oh you know there's no problem with a black princess and a white prince because look at our president he's biracial and there's nothing wrong with uh, miscegenation and mixed couples which there isn't anything wrong but are children are children able to understand that and are we really ready to talk about the history of miscegenation and I'm thinking also what does that say about not seeing loving black couples together you know again and there's a whole history behind that too that um, you know, it's very difficult to for black actresses to play, you know, the love interest and have um, 
those love comedic uh, movies that you know you constantly see Jennifer Aniston in, Sarah Jessica Parker, where even Eva Mendez, who was in a recent movie with Will Smith, Will Smith um, and he specifically said, yeah, he specifically. I don't remember if it was him who said it, but I remember in some of the conversations they were having about it that they had to take this African-American actor and put him with a Hispanic actor because no one's going to come see a black man and a black woman in a love scene, in a loving relationship. Right. Black relationships are always centered around violence. Um, the man not being there again, that the black woman as the superhero. And I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, but that's not the only relationships that exist. And especially in film, we need, in the arts, we need to see balance. Disney, like we were talking about, is fending off some of this... Um some of this criticism about the princess and the frog, the most contentious criticism that I've seen has been about the prince not being black. I did contact Disney to discuss the film uh, and the criticism about it. And the director of national publicity for Walt Disney uh, sent this statement. He said, hi, Robin, thanks for your interest in the film. Unfortunately, as we are into the final crunch with the film opening nationally, we won't be able to complete Ah, this. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you say to those who say, you know, it's just a film. Black people are being too sensitive about this. It's a kid's film. We should just, you know, take your kids, enjoy it. It's a story. I would say to them that stories carry power. The way we know history is through stories. Yes, it's written down, but who's doing the writing? Whose voice are we hearing it from? So it's not just a story. It's not just an image. You're investing first millions of dollars into it. Why are you putting so much money? It's it's just a story. And how many people are going to see this? And yes, we can go to the movies and enjoy this film. It's probably going to be a great film just from the story sense. But we can't ignore the history and context that this story is going to take place in and the characters it's going to center around. And I also wonder if there are any parallels to how other minority groups have been depicted in films over the years. Yes, I definitely think that other groups, uh, racial groups, um, homosexual um, community, it is the beginning of their stories being told, too. And I think if you um, just solely that, but it lends to the diversity within all of America that, you know, why can't we see a movie about a Latino lesbian couple. Or a um, number of movies. Or a like number. That. Um, because it's we just don't live in a, you know, heteronormative um, white male world. My thanks to Marjuan Kennedy, the actress and Fordham grad, holds degrees in theater, African and African American studies, and is currently pursuing a graduate degree at NYU. Next, what do parents and kids have to say about the new Disney film, The Princess and the Frog? Producer Liz Brockland went to the Ziegfeld Theater in Midtown Manhattan to find out. So I guess if you could just tell me your name, uh, where you're from, and what you do. My name is Monique, and I live in Mount Vernon, Westchester, New York. I brought my daughter to the movie because she's uh, Princess Tiana is the first African-American portrayal of a princess from Disney. What are your thoughts about Disney's first film with an African-American I think they did a good, a good job. Um, you know, it's very rare that we're portrayed as princesses as being an African-American woman, so it was nice to have that, my, my child being three years old, have that image in her head from three. If you could just first tell me your name. Um, Sydney. What race or color would you say is Princess Tiana? Um, purple. 
what race or color do you think the prince is? Um, pink. <laughs> I like the movie because it's fun. It's very funny. Uh, can you tell me what your name is? Jordan. Um, what was your favorite part of the movie? When they got married. Who was your favorite character and why? Tiana because she she's beautiful when she's a frog. She's not that slimy. <laughs> Be bad if she was slimy. I wouldn't want to touch her. Um, what color would you say Tiana is? Green. Uh, okay, she's brown. <laughs> um, have you seen any other Disney movies? Yes. yes. I saw Snow White. Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella. Cinderella and Aurora. Beauty and the Beast. My name is Robin Malolo. I'm from Spotswood, New Jersey, and I work with severely disabled children. Did you like the film? Excellent. Why? Because it introduced a new princess and because my son got to see a movie that um, incorporated a lot of different cultures into the film. But I'm really happy to see them branching out and doing things that are multicultural. Hi, I'm Angelique and I'm from Lyndhurst. Um, did you like the film? Yeah. Why? It's very Disney. We don't care, no, we don't care. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Next week, Mary Wilson will be your host. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. I need it.